Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe he didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I I knew you were going to go there. We're going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, really? The Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. By Haybale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Ottertail County. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. tuning in on this station right here on the Sporting Journal Radio Network by subscribing to the podcast. Maybe you listen to it on demand at SportingJournalRadio.com or maybe you're watching us on Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, Instagram, wherever you are enjoying us. Hopefully you're enjoying us. Thank you very much. Make sure if you do like it, smash that like button, share it with your friends and uh, follow us everywhere on social media as we try to bring you some tips and tricks and perspectives and ideas to make you better in the field and also fight for your rights as somebody who enjoys the outdoors so that we can keep these traditions for generations to come. One way to continue success in the field and to continue our way of life that we enjoy is by providing habitat for wildlife. If you want to go out there and be able to hunt, say, pheasants, you have to give them a place to live. You have to give them a place to uh, get some food and uh, provide some cover from the weather, from predators and more. Uh, CRP is one of the most successful habitat programs out there. You can look at the pheasant harvest numbers throughout the years and the highest years of CRP was at what, like 05, 06, 07, somewhere right in there. And you can see the peak of pheasant numbers right in that range there as well. Well, and we're going to learn more about the CRP sign-up that is going on currently right now with the Pheasants Forever guys in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want to learn a little bit more and get a perspective that you don't hear as often. So we've got David and Lindsay Eckhart in studio here with us. Uh, David's a farmer. David, right? Yep. I've been farming for 12 years. Corn and beans? Just corn and soybeans. Corn and livestock. So. All right. And Lindsay, your wife, uh, worked for FSA for a while, right? Correct. Yep. For four and a half years. Four and a half years. So how often did you get asked about CRP or various conservation easement programs by landowners and farmers? Well, I was the CRP program technician while working there. Um, so every every day, um, even when there wasn't a sign up, um, we were talking about it. We were working on it. We were sending out notifications and um, information to producers to fulfill their contracts. So, so, so that was, lot. yeah, you're pr- probably pretty busy. What years was that? Uh, 2016 through 2020. Okay. What was the most common question you got asked about CRP in particular? Um, You know, it was all over the board. A lot of producers would come in with no information regarding CRP and just wondering what programs they could sign up for um, through FSA as a whole. Um, Other producers would come in very knowledgeable. They knew exactly what they were eligible for on certain parts of their land. They knew um, exactly how many acres they wanted to sign up. Um, So it really really varied. Um, We really ran the gamut of who we were working with, beginning farmers that hadn't ever farmed before, that were just getting into it, all the way to farmers that have been multiple generations and have worked with FSA and CRP for many, many years. How, how 
easy is that process when a producer comes in and says, yep, I want to get in on, on this new sign up for CRP. Uh, how long does that process take before deal is done, everything's signed and the land, the land goes into habitat? Um, on a producer's end, it's um, pretty straightforward. There are some hoops that they have to jump through as far as eligibility for the program and making sure that their land specifically is eligible for certain practices. Not every piece of land is going to be eligible. CRP specifically is a program designed to take sensitive land out of crop rotation and crop protect, um, uh, crop uh, production, production, excuse me, um, to, to make sure that it's not you know eroding or it's not flooding and if it is there are crp programs that would fit that um so first we have to make sure that they're eligible both as a producer and as the land and then we do a lot of work to make sure that we're putting it in the right program whether that's filter strips which we did a lot of whether that's you know bird habitat whether that's tree lines um, it really varies um, and they sign some contracts they have to make sure that you know it is a 10 to 15 year contract um, so it is a big commitment and they have to make sure that they know what they're signing up for and uh, making sure that they're willing to do what it takes as far as maintenance and planting the specific seed in order to get that money. It's not just a free money program. Um, so on the producer's end, it does take a little bit of work. It does take a little bit of research and knowledge, um, but the FSA um, personnel does a lot of that work along with NRCS and Soil and Water to make sure that they're knowledgeable and that um, they're signing up for something that's going to be good, not only for them, but for the land too. Well, how often was it somebody that say they got I don't know, 160 acres and says, I, I don't know what I can do, uh, but I want to, I want to get in on CRP. Did, would somebody get sent out to look at the land then and kind of make a plan? Um, yes, sometimes um, if there were very specific requests from the producers. Um, there's also uh, technology that we have that we can, we map the soil that's already mapped in it. We um, see what each piece of land is eligible for based on the soil maps that we have. Um, so that would dictate if it's eligible for, you know, something that would conserve erosion, um, making sure that water banks and whatnot aren't um, being destroyed versus something that would be planted for bird habitat so the filter strips were a little controversial they were yes how what i mean and you can talk about however you want to talk about this but what did you hear from people about filter strips well i want to point out that farm farmers and agriculture producers they're stewards of the land first right. and foremost obviously they need to make a living and they need to make sure that their crops are you know producing um, what they what they need um, to be able to financially make farming work that's Mika thanking a farmer for <laughs> pheasant habitat right now um, and so a lot of producers would come and utilize FSA programs CRP um, to make sure that they are doing what's right for the land and you know getting some monetary benefit for that um, so we did have a lot of people that were utilizing fsa and crp prior to the filter strips mandate being put into place um, some people really like the filter strip mandate um, which is 16 and a half feet on either side of a waterway to um, stop erosion and provide a buffer um, some people just like with anything don't love the government overreach yeah. um so it was it was mixed you know they they were being compensated for that land crp is um put into place to provide 
payment for a quote unquote crop that you're planting, um, which is like a grass mixture, whatever that may be based on the CRP practice. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, you, you dealt with some producers that were being forced to put, put it on their land, those filter strips, and they didn't love that. Yeah. Um, but um, most of the people that we worked with were very good and, and we, you know, it upped our workload too. So um, it wasn't, it wasn't always the best for us, but um, we made it work and um, we're always grateful for the producers that, that really come in and, and appreciate the work that everybody did. So. Well, mandates, nobody really likes being told what to do, right. you know, and it, and I, no. what I always heard from farmers was that it's not a one size fits all. So that's where the mandate becomes a problem because it's not everybody's land is the same. But I, under, I also understand the need for clean water and filtering and those filter shifts. Not only did they provide, I mean, those filter strips and and buffer strips uh, really benefited so many people. I mean, I understand that farmers didn't like some of their land getting taken away or having to having to work around the the strips like that. But not only did it provide habitat, but what it did for water quality and being able to filter some of that water quality and, and contr help control erosion a little bit, I think is is something that that is important that we all need to think about these days. David, from a from a farmer or producer uh, landowner perspective, when it comes to CRP, do you guys have any CRP right now? Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah, we've got several farms that have CRP and mostly filter strips. So when that mandate came through, we had filter strips on all of our ditches already. Oh, you already had them. So you yeah. were cool with it. It was yeah. like, perfect. Now we're getting paid for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> perfect. All right. What, so when I, you know, when say there's the new sign up, the new general sign up is going on right now. When you think about CRP, what, what's a determining factor for you? What's, what makes you say, no, nah, that's not for me or this. Oh no, this sounds pretty good. Um, it's more so for like trouble areas. Like say you've got, a low section that drowns out all the time well instead of either paying rent on it and then putting the inputs into it and not getting anything off of it or if you own it same you're putting inputs in and not getting receiving any benefits off of it you can put it into crp and then still get some money back but not have to put all those input costs in so Sorry, it sounds like my little dog is destroying something in the other yeah, room right now. Like she's trying to dig through the floor, oh, maybe. Oh, boy. <laughs> I might have to, I have to do something about that. All right. Um, and then, so is your, like, so let me start that over. So how long of a contract, do you just, have you renewed contracts on those strips then, or are you still in the... Um, one of my dad's, we renewed a couple years ago and just left it all the same. So we didn't have to change anything. So you're able to just keep re-enrolling and you like, you like the way it worked and yeah. would keep re-enrolling if you have the option. Yep. And we pheasant hunt. So it's, it's a nice spot. You know, I think, <laughs> I don't always think people realize how, how many farmers are actually hunters. You know, farmers get a bad rap and, and granted there's bad people in every walk of life. So there are some people maybe doing some things wrong, but farmers always get the bad rap about, you know, plowing every, every piece of dirt over and, and tearing up all the grass. But a lot of farmers hunt. Yeah. And I don't think people always realize how many actually do. Well, there's, they're out there all the time. They know yeah. what's there. So Gosh, yeah, I, I, should like be a, them too. I should be a farmer. I had big giant <laughs> food plots here right? and some filter strips around it. Sounds yep. good to me. Do you do some food plot work then too? I do a lot of food plot work. Yeah. Okay. I do a lot of deer hunting and I plant probably five or six acres of food plots between all my food plots that I run. 
When, just bounce back to CRP for one second. When it comes to uh, rate, like CRP rates, uh, are they competitive enough? Is that is that come, come down? You know, does the price that you're getting versus the price of you know corn beans is that how big of a factor is that role? And is does it depend on the size of your farm and maybe the size of the, the acreage you want to put into uh, an easement program? I think it depends more on the soil type, but I'll, here I'll head it to Lindsay. All right. So it, every sign-up has different rates that are associated with it set by the um, national office. Um, and it is based on soil, the soil maps that we have. Um, that's the annual payment um, and the acres that are going into the contract. Um, and to your point, CRP was never intended on being something that would take good productive acres out of production. Um, it was for those sensitive lands, those lands that, like David said, you know, might be a little wetter, might be, um, you know, marginal. Marginal, yes. And um, so there were a few years that, you know, around the time that the filter ships were implemented, that they were really high rates, and we did see some producers saying. And, and owners and renters saying, you know, I can't, I can't match these rates of CRP. And so there were some acres that were maybe not filter ships, but other um, programs or other CRP practices were signed up that, you know, maybe they should have been left in conventional farming. They weren't necessarily sensitive, um, but they were providing a really good payment and they were competitive with what people were paying for rental rates. That's not typical and those rates have come down, um, but it's never, in, the program was never intended on being competitive against producing food to feed the world. Sure. All right. Well, I appreciate you guys stopping by and giving us a, a, a bit of a different perspective. I like hearing from the from the farmers and then to have a, a wife work for FSA. I mean, that's perfect. I, I yeah, he had an in-house help. From yeah. FSA. <laughs> Is that like insider trading? Do you find out about, hey, there's going to be a new CRP and you're going to want to get in on this? <laughs> I'd make him call the office a few times. I'm off, off the clock. I don't want to answer these questions. That's funny. All right. Uh, David, Lindsay, Eckhart, thanks for the time today on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. And David, David, we'll have you back next week. How about that? All right. Lindsay, you can come back too if you want. All right. Okay. We, uh, we're going to talk more CRP and pheasant fest and pheasants in general with pheasants forever. we got Jared Wickland, Aaron Sandquist, and Caleb Blocker coming up on the show. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. All right, welcome to the show, or if you're listening to us on the radio station, thank you for tuning in on this station on the Sporting Journal Radio Network, or if you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, thank you very much. If you like it, smash that like and share and follow button on all that good stuff. So I recently, Dan, I think obsessed is probably the right word for it. I've become obsessed with pheasants from hunting them to watching them to watching my dogs hunt them and just learning more about their behaviors. And one of the ways that I've been doing that is by chasing around with a camera or uh, taking pictures or taking videos. And recently, Pheasants Forever shared one of my favorite videos. So what we're watching right now on YouTube, Facebook, or whatever, is a group of birds landing in a food plot. 
And uh, gosh, it's just I can't. I, I could sit and just watch this on repeat all day long. It's just so cool. And I got really lucky with the placement of my camera on this. I just happened to put it right where they were landing. In fact, I've got a few more videos like this. Two actually, two pheasants hit the camera as they come in and land in there. They're a little surprised. I think no birds were harmed in that video. Uh, but I get asked all the time, how did I get that? And honestly, the best answer I can give them is habitat from planting that food plot, from having cat cover nearby from having willow thickets they love the willow thickets around here especially in the winter time this time of year and without all those types of habitat around there you wouldn't have the birds at least not numbers of birds like that and also I sat and watched them for hours. For two weeks, every morning and afternoon, I was out there with cameras and uh, I took, I don't know, 20,000 pictures and recorded hours and hours wow. of, of video. So long story short, I worked really hard to get lucky and uh, trail cameras and GoPros and different cameras like that can really come in handy. And I, that was a GoPro. So I had to, not only did I have to figure out where those birds were landing, but I had to figure out what time it was because I had to hit record and then walk away from it and just hope that the battery didn't die before they came in. Um, so I got pretty lucky and that's not the only really cool video of pheasants in a food plot that I've seen recently. This one was also on the Pheasants Forever page, and this shows uh, pheasants feeding around uh, food plot, corn, food plot, standing corn, and then you see an aerial predator come in and just bomb into that corn, and, uh, and then the pheasants flush out. And that video was taken and shared by Jared Wickland, uh, public relations manager with Pheasants Forever, and Jared joins us on the show right now. Jared, how's it going? Hey, Brett, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. What was that that bombed those birds, and did he get anything? Uh, to my knowledge, <clears throat> and I'm not an ornithologist by trade, but uh, talking to talking to people who've asked similar questions about it, I, I think it was either a red-tailed hawk uh, or a red-shouldered hawk, um, both of which I think you can see it kind of came through. I think it noticed some movement there and just made a 180 and took a, took, took a dive down near the corn. But uh, there was no birds harmed in the making of that film, but it was really <laughs> cool to see afterwards when I put it on my computer. Um, you know, it's, it's funny that red-tailed hawks and especially red-tailed hawks uh, get a lot of the blame for like, oh, I don't have any birds in my area. The hawk population is horrible, you know. Um, in most cases, red tails aren't the, aren't the ones causing any problems. They're, they're more ambush predators that sit in a tree and fall down and eat a lot of mice and voles and stuff like that. So it was a cool video. Uh, those birds all made it out of there and they flew to a cattail slew uh, that was just uh, off the right-hand side of the screen. So that's a, it's a neat video and it's pretty neat how those trail cameras have allowed us to peek into the, the, the natural lives of some of the wildlife and how they interact with each other out there on the landscape. And when you have good habitat, you're going to have lots of wildlife out there. And that's part of our discussion today. It's, well, it's most of our discussion today here on the show. And we also have um, Aaron Sanquist, the Minnesota State Coordinator with us from Pheasants Forever. Aaron, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I, I feel a little bad now. I don't have a cool video like you and Jared, but I, uh, I can assure you that I share your love for habitat equally. Absolutely. Well, we're going to discuss what our habitat situation is here uh, in Minnesota, and we'll also talk about the surrounding states today as well, too. And then Kayla Blocker is joining us. She's a Farm Bill wildlife biologist with, uh, with Pheasants Forever. Kayla, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on here. 
So part of the reason that we're having you guys on right now, of course, is this general sign-up for uh, CRP. And it's nice to see that we've got uh, the opportunity for people to sign up right now. What what are the details and how can people sign up for it right now, Kayla? Uh, so the details for uh, general CRP is um, landowners will come into the local FSA office um, and submit an offer uh requesting that some of their environmentally sensitive land um, gets put into uh, cover, native cover, grasses, trees, um, and so on. Uh, Once FSA takes their offer, um, they'll establish uh, a score. And then for the general uh, sign up, it is ranked and scored nationally. Uh, the secretary secretary of agriculture um, sets a capped amount for the score that is accepted, and then from there we establish the CRP. I wanted to put you on for, I knew you were a little nervous, so I wanted to just get you on right away, get you right out of the gate and get get it over with. Cause, uh, so you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, it's nice. I know. Um, so when, when the last farm, when did the last farm bill come out? Is that, was that a couple of years now? Uh, 2018 was the, the most recent farm bill. All right. So I'm reading, reading about it right now. Um, there is 22.1 million acres enrolled. Right. With a 20, 25 and a half million acre cap set for uh, for 2022. So that so that means we can uh, how many acres are available in this sign up then? Um, Would that be it's 1.4 million acres? Okay, so that and that varies then like how much people can is that is that set for each state like each state gets a different amount? There are certain incentives within the program that are set per state. Um, most of those are for the continuous sign-up, but under the general okay. sign-up, it is ranked nationwide. I got you. Oh, excuse me. All right, Jared, we're 25 and a half or 22.1 million acres. Not, not bad. Not quite where we would like to see it, though, is it? No, I mean, if you look back to, if we rewind the clock a little bit, I think a lot of listeners will recognize like 2007, 2008, uh, we were sitting at just under 40 million acres of CRP and and that corresponded with upland bird harvest, uh, you know, kind of modern day highs in a lot of states. Uh, Minnesota was one of them. Uh, South Dakota that year, 2007, 2008, they shot more than 2 million roosters. I mean, it was just absolutely loaded with birds. And, uh, you know, throughout time, it just goes to show that CRP continues to be sort of the, the, the Cadillac or the catalyst behind dozen populations in this country. And I, I get a lot of questions throughout the year, uh, especially when you go east of the Mississippi River, uh, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, a lot of those states used to, to shoot a million birds a year as well. And people have asked, you know, like, well, why can't we do that anymore? What's, what's the, uh, what's the number one thing that's happened or, or what's the number one um, particular factor that's factor, affecting yeah dozen populations and that's just gr- grass 
grasslands. Grasslands, intact grasslands on the landscape. Nesting cover continues to be a number one limiting factor. When you compare some of those eastern states to what we have in Minnesota, Dakotas, Kansas, where all these states are in the, uh, you know, one, mil- one million plus acres of CRP, um, that, that really, that, your answer is staring you right in the face. We just don't have enough grasslands in some of those states to sustain an upland bird harvest uh, like we do uh, in the Midwest here. So when I talked about that habitat where I got that video, well, some of this habitat is in the CRP program and some of it's also rimland. How, how many, you know, CRP is the one that gets talked about quite a bit, but there's some other options out there for people. Yeah, there definitely are. Um, you talk about easement programs, uh, conservation reserve enhancement programs through CREP. Um, each individual state uh, kind of has their, their own incentives that they'll throw in on top uh, of a, well, general CRP, but there's there's all sorts of different uh, grass grassland CRP programs that are available um, and other agricultural programs that are available through, through FSA uh, and NRCS offices. So um, it is incredibly important and like you pointed out, like the birds that you showed in that video, which which is probably one of the biggest videos we've shared uh, on Pheasants Forever's Facebook page, maybe maybe ever. Um, it, it just goes to show that that habitat really is the key to having upland bird populations, and it, it's all those things combined. You know, people. I don't want people to get the the misconception like they see the corn there. Like I need corn, and I'm going to have upland birds. It starts way before that. It starts at nesting season. It starts with good winter cover. Um, you got to have the food next to the kitchen, as we like to say, which is exactly what you have there. They don't have to travel far from the cattails. And uh, utilizing the suite of programs uh, that we have available, not only through the farm bill, um, but at the state level as well, are extremely important for uh, you know making up on bird populations grow down in the future. Kayla, as a farm bill biologist, what are you hearing from farmers and landowners about this year's uh, this year's uh, sign up? I guess this year's option. Um, obviously, uh, the rental rates right now um, are talked about a lot when it comes to uh, their options and their decision ultimately to put it into CRP. Um, it's very competitive with our. Um, county level uh, land rent price. Mm. So the CRP has in the last couple of years has been increasing um, as rental rates um, have been as well. So um, need, as well you as need I that, see, don't you? I mean, it needs to be competitive. You do. Yeah. Otherwise you don't have um, that desire to put it in. Um, a lot of the people that you meet um, in the office are going to be either absentee landowners or uh, landowners that have areas that aren't as productive that they want to be able to make an income off of still. Um, So it does need to be competitive. Yeah. And and, I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Jared, you're not talking about taking over somebody's whole property and planting grass on it. I mean, obviously nobody's going to complain about that, but you're talking about taking land that is hard to farm marginal crop yep. lands, stuff that it, it, the farmer's just gonna, gonna get frustrated trying to work a plow through it or whatever. It's gonna flood out, whatever the case may be, and turning that into, uh, you know, turning it into habitat and giving the farmer some money in his pocket at the same time. Yeah, it's, uh, it's extremely important. And I think the, the term that I like to use is precision conservation. 
Um, we don't need to we don't need to turn whole sections into CRP. Uh, in some cases, whether it's you know CRP or uh, some of the acquisition work we do, we love getting big big pieces of property. But when we're working with landowners, we're for focusing on the marginal acres that they have. And I think folks need to remember that CRP was always about uh, you know soil health and water quality. Wildlife habitat came a little bit later, and now we're getting into more things too moving forward uh, with the term sustainability. So climate resiliency, I think, would be another one as well. Um, I think, and Kayla is absolutely right, in uh, 21st century conservation, we need to make sure that we are compensating landowners fairly. And one of the things we're running into right now is when, um, you know, we did have a, a little bit of a bump in soil rental rates for CRP, but at the same time, as grain prices go up and down, and right, right now they're pretty up, um, you know, CRP is a little bit of a harder sell um, when you look at cash rental rates per county and what people are getting. And we'll, we'll never demonize uh, farmer, rancher, landowner, uh, you know, because it's a it's a financial decision. So how do we how do we make it uh, uh, financially feasible um, and uh, ecologically viable at the same time? And that's part of the advocacy work that Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever uh, works on with with the, with the farm bill and in each individual state. All right. Well, we want to bring Aaron into this conversation, but if you're listening on the radio show, we're going to take a quick break and then uh, we'll come back with, uh, with more with Pheasants Forever and Habitat work coming up right after this. Ice fishing season is here. This winter, plan a trip to Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Not only will you have the chance to catch their legendary perch, but this year, Hay Bale Heights has been catching big walleye after big walleye. And they're doing it from a mobile, comfortable snow bear. No matter how cold it is outside, you're warm and toasty on the inside. Learn more and book a trip today at haybaleheights.com. That's haybaleheights.com. All right, we're back on the radio network. Thanks for tuning in. Or if you're listening to the podcast, welcome back as well. Maybe you're watching this on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or wherever. Make sure you smash that like button, follow us, share this with your friends if you like what we're talking about. And what we're talking about is important. If you are a hunter or a fan of wildlife, if you're an upland hunter, honestly, if you're a waterfowl hunter, a deer hunter, a pheasant hunter, it doesn't matter. What we're talking about is going to benefit all those wildlife species and a bunch of non-game species as well. And that's just about putting wildlife habitat on the landscape and one of those one of the more successful ways of doing in that doing that has been the conservation reserve program or crp and there's a general sign up going on now through march 11th so we've got jared wicklin caleb blocker and aaron sanquist from pheasants forever with us here on the show and aaron i want to talk to you about what the landscape looks like uh particularly in minnesota you're the state coordinator in minnesota so let's let's start there um I mean, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw this question at you. You probably got it in your notes. Maybe you have to look it up. But what's the like the number of acreage of public land that we have here in the state of Minnesota, um, kind of currently right now? Well, if you're if you're talking state of Minnesota, you're looking at like 12 million acres. Now, you know the vast majority of that is kind of the northern half of Minnesota, where you have a lot of woodlands and you have county-owned lands that are open to the public. County tax forfeit. Um, you have state parks, state forests. You have wildlife management areas. So um, when you when you get south into what we call the pheasant range, then the number of public land acres uh, decreases pretty significantly, and you're you're looking at like that. 1.5 million acres um, across the pheasant range of Minnesota. 
So 1.5 million acres of public land, that makes the CRP program just that much more important so that you've got habitat on the private lands as well, too. Because I'll tell you what, I don't know how many times I'll walk some a public WMA in southwest Minnesota, especially later in the year, and, and you might flush a, a couple of hens or you might shoot some roosters, too, depending on it. But there's usually some adjacent property that's private that's got habitat, CRP or rim or whatever the case may be, and that's where all the birds are, especially later in the season. So how important is that to have particularly adjacent lands or corridors in addition to the public lands that we have here in Minnesota? Well, it's absolutely critical. And, you know, that's we, we, we phrase that the habitat mosaic, you know, and, and that's what we're really trying to do here is, is build complexes of habitat that make sense strategically across the landscape to, to kind of maximize the wildlife production on all of the habitat. And then certainly, you know, the public land component is providing that access for people to get outside and enjoy those those wildlife uh, areas as well. When you talk about that amount of public acreage, and yeah, a lot of it is up up north and trees and not really in the the pheasant range, but when you talk about that acreage down the southwest or southern part of the state where you got pheasants, what are the odds of growing that number and what's the challenge of growing that number and uh, and how what's the target number? How high do we want it to get? Well, those are great questions, and I would say we're, you know, as it relates to public land, we're trending in the right direction. Uh, we have a lot of great opportunities currently in Minnesota. You know, things like dedicated funding that Minnesota voters passed back in 2008 has certainly been a huge boost um, as it relates to what not only wildlife habitat but also publicly accessible wildlife habitat. So. Um, you know, one thing that I want to mention, you know, and this is true of both public land efforts, uh, protection efforts and private land is it's completely voluntarily voluntary. So we work with folks who want to make habitat on their private land, whether it's through programs like CRP or uh, permanent easements that you reference. And we work only with willing sellers who want to protect their land um, as, as public accessibility as, as something that's wildlife habitat, but also pu- publicly accessible. How often do you run into, uh, there, was a, there was a case a couple of years ago, and I, I don't even know, it might have been last year uh, that it finally got wrapped up, I can't remember now, but uh, Lac Parle County and the situation with uh, somebody trying to sell their property and the county blocked it and this and that, I think it finally got resolved. I think, what was the, what did the, the outcome was good for that, right? He was able to sell it? Um, well, he hasn't yet, but yes, yeah, so that's trending in the right direction as well. Okay. Um, the Land Exchange Board did approve that sale to, to go through now. You know, there's a bunch of process to get, get make that happen and, and be fully executed, but they're working on it uh, with the state of Minnesota. And, um, you know, we see a lot of folks that, that really want to protect their land through Pheasants Forever and, and as WMAs, as WPAs. And, and, you know, that's really a niche of Pheasants Forever. Um, our supporters, our, our volunteers, uh, People are losing access to, to wildlife habitat and, and properties that they've had permission. They just don't have that permission. So public land uh, is, has never been more critical, especially in the southern part of Minnesota. And I, you know, I, 
I I see it from I can see it from both sides to some extent. I don't remember that particular uh, scenario on how it played out in Lackawanna County, but I can see it where farmers, you know, hey man, that that's taken that's that could have been farmland that I could have leased or bought and grown corn on it and made some money. I could have passed it down to my kids. Now that's never going to happen. But that land that land was marginal, right? Like that wasn't good land to farm on anyway. So, but I, but I can see how some people could have issues with some land coming out of production but access which you just brought up access i think is number one right now there's a lot of discussion about increasing hunters increasing participation in the outdoors license sales declining and what what the right answer for reversing that everybody's got a little bit different opinions but i think access is is key. I think that's the number one thing, particularly for say pheasants or uh, or deer hunting. I know you know, waterfowl. I had this discussion. Tom Landwehr was on the show and in the house here in the studio uh, a couple of months ago, and he said, "He said, Brett, we got twelve. We got ten thousand lakes. You can waterfowl hunt all over the place." And I said, "Well, I, I I understand that, but when it comes to you know walking through the grass or walking through the woods or or something like that, access is uh, is quite a bit more limited, um, particularly." in the southern part of the state so access i think you nailed it is is huge and what can a person do like what what can we do to help create access or help create access to more lands or create more public lands out there well there's a there's a few things and i'll, I'll go back to your, your first uh, comment on on marginal land and you know just like the crp program and, and other other private land programs you know we're targeting the marginal farmland and it we hear so many times from the folks who are working with us to protect their land as, as public uh, hunting. I never should have farmed this. Um, it's terrible land. I, it's always flooded or it's, it's never gets a good crop. And, and they tell us that, you know, they wish they never had plowed it. So those are the properties we're targeting. We're not targeting prime farmland. Uh, you know, we understand that we need agriculture and, and pheasants need agriculture um, and, right. and a balance that way. So, um, you know, as it relates to what people can do, um, support public lands, you know, buy, buy your hunting and fishing licenses, utilize those properties. Um, you know, some of the, the best days that I have in the office are when I get an email uh, with a pheasant or, or some young person that just harvested an animal or had a great experience on a public land. They, they get back to the, the vehicle. They see Pheasants Forever had acquired that property on the sign and they take a picture and then email it and uh, say how great of an experience they had. So, you know, getting out there and utilizing their public lands um, will help us as, as a conservation community create more of those and, and, and all Minnesotans understand how valuable they are to our, our hunting heritage and our quality of life here in the state. How do we determine how much of that, uh, that CRP is available for Aaron? This is a question for Aaron. How much... <laughs> <laughs> How's it going over there? Do it yourself. <laughs> uh, how much, when there's a sign up like this, how much, how do we determine, I guess, how do we figure out how much Minnesota is going to get? As it relates to CRP? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, well, I, I don't know if that decision has been made yet. Um, you know, that happens in DC, in DC, as I understand it. And, you know, that'll be part of, they're looking at all of the, the bids, so to speak, and all the applications and, and that will help determine uh, how many acres are, are allocated by state. 
Okay, I'll bring Kayla back on for that one. She's she's over there nodding her head. She's got the answer for that. I know we kind of touched on it earlier, but um, you know when I talk when we talk about creating more habitat, what can we do to get more of that here or uh, or in areas that you know close to here? Um, obviously you want to look at your, as Aaron and everyone has mentioned, your marginal areas. So, um, the last couple of years, uh, other than last year, uh, the very wet areas that used to be, um, wetlands, you know, we're in the prairie pothole region and a lot of Minnesota land can go into a continuous sign up, um, through CRP for wetland restoration. So how does it, how does the general, uh, walk me through that? So there's a continuous sign up. So somebody, if somebody has got something enrolled and their contract comes up, they'll have the opportunity to, to re-enroll it. That's continuous, right? Uh, it can be either through continuous or general. Um, so the local, uh, USDA, uh, between both FSA, um, and either a farm bill biologist like myself or a soil and water tech um, or an NRCS soil con is going to uh, look at their land um, and determine which um, sign up is going to be best for them. If it needs to go through a general ranking where it's not going to be guaranteed or a continuous sign up um, where it can't, it's more guaranteed to be able to get in. So the general, basically you say, Hey, I've got 80 acres here. I want to put it in and then it goes into it gets submitted and then the determination comes down if that one makes sense more than another piece of property correct yep so and they're all ranked um in under the general uh, nationally and that's where the you know as aaron was saying out in dc they're going to determine where they're going to put that scoring cutoff and uh and so on how often does a general sign up come around? Hopefully annually. Um, when I first started working with Pheasants Forever, there wasn't a general sign up for a couple of years. Um, but since the new farm bill, by, um, the farm bill went through, uh, we've had an annual general sign up um, since 2018. So. All right. Well, if you're listening on the radio network, we're going to take, actually, we're going to probably end the show if you're listening on the radio network, but we got more discussion with Pheasants Forever about Habitat and the CRP sign up on the podcast. Uh, so download the podcast or the the Sporting Journal radio podcast or the Finding Firm Feathers podcast. For those of you listening on the radio, thank, for li- thank you for listening. For those of you on the podcast, we'll be right back. Looking for winter adventure? Might as well pick a place with over 1,000 lakes. Ottertail County, Minnesota is in the middle of everywhere, offers a simpler pace, and has something for everyone. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. Keeping Sheep on the Mountain. That's the goal of the Wild Sheep Foundation, and you can help by attending the Midwest chapter of the Wild Sheep Foundation's annual banquet, March 25th and 26th at the Minneapolis Marriott Southwest in Minnetonka. This year, you could win your very own doll sheep on the Yukon. Plus, enjoy keynote speakers like conservationist Shane Mahoney, president and CEO of the Wild Sheep Foundation, Gray Thornton, and the British Columbia Backcountry Hunters and Anglers chapter liaison, Bill Hanlon. Plus, there'll be live and silent auctions and seminars put on by the Hunt and Fool. For more information, go to Midwest 
podcastwildsheep.com. All right, we're back here on the podcast. Thanks for watching on Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, whatever. Make sure you like us, follow us, and comment below if you have any questions about the CRP program or any comments on uh, the future of public lands, things like that. We want to hear from you. If there's a question you're wondering, like, why hasn't anybody ever asked this question? Comment below, and we'll make sure somebody gets an answer for you. Uh, we have uh, Jared Wickland from Pheasants Forever, Aaron Sanquist, and Caleb Blocker with us right now, and we're talking to Caleb about this general sign-up of CRP, which goes through March 11th. And Kayla, you were saying that you it's you're hoping it, it it's annual. It's not guaranteed that it's uh, that there's a general sign up every year. Um, how do they determine, or when do they determine if there's going to be a sign up? Uh, they determine a sign up at the beginning of the year. Um, obviously there isn't going to be guaranteed funding. Um, we obviously, we want to hope that CRP will be around, um, for as long as I would know, but there are other resources, um, other options, uh, working with soil and your local soil and water districts, um, equip, uh, through the NRCS and CSP also have options for, um, smaller habitat, um, areas, uh, that aren't thought about as much when it comes to, uh, protecting habitat, um, and as well as, you know, improving your land. So what they, uh, so every January, so they determine if there's going to be, if there's going to be a sign up. And I suppose every time it would probably look a little bit different. And this is from the farm bill in, in 2018. What, what, how long, how does that, when does a farm bill change? I guess, when is there a new farm bill? Is there, what's a determining factor on that? Uh, that might be a better question for Jared uh, when it comes to when a farm bill is determined. Because um, I, I just I, don't follow, and I should follow the, the politics of it a little bit more, Jared, but I all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, there's a new farm bill. Is that, is that some sort, is that change in administrations or what determines that? Change in administrations, um, you know, typically, typically every four years is when they start to sit down and, and farm form the new farm bill moving forward and obviously crp is high on our radar um, yeah. when you look at a lot of the different things going on right now too uh, with sustainability uh, climate resiliency uh, carbon sequestration um, there's no better program in the country than the conservation reserve program crp or grasslands in general so uh, you know moving forward we're working really hard right now uh, to make sure that that crp is going to be a viable option for landowners well in the the future um you know the cap is going to continue to go up here to, to 27 27 million acres in the next two years um and our job at pheasants forever and quill forever and through our advocacy efforts and through our farm bill biologist program which we've got a very robust one here in the state of minnesota and nationally uh, we've got over 200 farm bill biologists on the landscape uh, our job is to help landowners meet their land use goals and whether that's whether that's for pheasants maybe it's water quality um you know soil health uh, you know and it's not just pheasants if they're focusing on white-tailed deer uh the wild turkey whatever the case may be um our biologists can really help people uh find uh the, a, a nice mix for their property because you know one of our slogans is, is that there's there's room for wildlife habitat on every farm uh ranch and piece of property in the united states and our people are very good at uh, helping folks determine uh what they what they want to put down for habitat 
Yeah, so how does that work? If somebody uh, enrolls in CRP and they, they get the contract, do who, who helps them plant seed or what tells them what to plant and kind of designs the habitat a little bit? Go ahead, Kayla. Uh, that would be um, us, the local farm bill biologists, um, NRCS. We work close with um, NRCS and, and following the USDA regulations. Um, they're, you know, planting the CRP and native grass and flowers uh, or trees even to um, last for 10, 15 years of their first contract, um, if not re-enrolling. Um, I've worked with people that are on their fourth re-enrollment of a single chunk of land. Hmm. So, and then the, the, I always get asked this question too, when somebody does enroll in a, in CRP and, and, or other easement program, and I know there's, there's different rules with different programs, but what can a, what can a person do? So say I, so I have put 80 acres of CRP in, um, can I build deer stands on that? Can I build trails through it? Um, are there specific rules on, on land use once it's enrolled in a program like that? To an extent, there is. Um, the we're we're you know CRP um, is paying you to have a uh, native cover on the land. Um, obviously, it's still going to be your land. You can utilize it as you wish. Um, so deer stands are welcome as long as it doesn't have like a permanent cement base or it's not. Um, you know your deer camp house um out there uh but you can use um you can i've had people mow down trails um i usually just recommend that you move them um from year to year so you're not mm. constantly trampling um that that one area um but uh, a lot of local uh, apiaries, bee raisers, will um, actually partner with um, CRP uh, landowners to put their um, hives out. Oh, sure. Um, to have a, a nice place to have wildflowers. Sure, get some pollinators out there. Uh, of course. And then what you're allowed to put in uh, a certain amount of acreage of food plots in something like that too, right? Within certain programs, yes. Uh, it's up to uh, 10 acres or 10% of the offer you can put into food plots. Um, depending on the area, it might not be feasible for you to have um, a traditional corn um, food plot. Um, but I, I usually ask people to think about doing um, some more diverse areas um, where you're going to have a higher diversity of um, flowers for pollinators um, will attract your insects and then will be good for um, brood rearing for pheasants. Um, so you'll have a, a good diversity um, in one area as well as being able to have that mosaic um, of land that you can have good uh wintering as well as brood rearing i think 
for a for a guy like me who loves to hunt these birds, the the next phase in the evolution of a pheasant hunter is designing a landscape. And I'm I, I'm all for public land and access, but I'll tell you what, guys, I want to buy I want to buy my own piece of property, and I want to design it, and I want to build a little wildlife kingdom on it, and um, and that means a diverse. You're right, a diverse set of of plants and cover and food and put it all together. Um, because that's that's really what you need, and that's I've I've seen it, I've seen it, we've seen it in these videos, and Jared, from from what we're looking at right now, um, weather. I mean, we've had some winter storms, which they can they can weather those winter storms. See what I did there? Yeah, they, can, they can weather those winter storms if they have that right habitat complex, right? Yeah. So, I mean, weather is obviously a really important factor, um, but it's, it's, it's negated with quality habitat. So yeah. uh, we have had some winter weather, uh, particularly in the last week here, we had a pretty large storm blow through um, a lot of the larger totals of snow went further north. So I think in most cases, a lot of pheasant country has been sitting uh, pretty well, especially Southern Minnesota as you get down uh, into Iowa and then over in, you know, to Nebraska and, and those types of regions. So, um, you know, I think one thing we're all waiting for is it to, to warm up a little bit. Um, we've been, you know, uh, below average temps here for most of the winter. Um, but from what I can see on the landscape and people I've talked to is that the, the birds seem to be doing pretty fine. And um, really when we get into spring, uh, that, that spring weather and, you know, whether it uh, stays average or we have a really wet spring or, or dry spring, which typically helps. Um, you know, that's, uh, remains to be seen, but right now I think we're sitting pretty good, uh, right. as far as winter impacts. Well, I want to get back to pheasants, but Dan just put that snow map up and Jared, that's got me thinking about snow geese. I'm not going to lie. Cause that, <laughs> follow that snow line up. Um, but it's, it's interesting, you know, obviously the spring weather, and uh, and then the, sometimes those June hailstorms have such an impact um, that that winter, like w tough winters, can be tough on wildlife. There's no doubt about it. But pheasants are actually pretty hardy in, in some of those cold, snowy winters if they have places to hide and, and stay warm. Uh, South Dakota, by the by the sounds of it, doesn't have a lot of snow, and we didn't have a lot of snow here in western Minnesota before these last storms here in this past week. Um, and it was it's fun to watch them all break out when that sun comes out after a snow and you see all of a sudden you see the pheasants break out and uh, you know obviously that means they had to hide out for a little bit but it's fun to see them break out into that warm weather and and uh feed up after a storm like that yeah it's been um we've had some winter weather but i mean i was out in, i was out in aberdeen uh hunting the last last week into january and um, most of the fields out there were still pretty pretty wide open um, obviously some snow drifts but there is uh, plenty of birds they seem to be doing well uh, and same thing at my house when you get the the wind and snow to calm down uh, like it has been today a be beautiful day um, little below average temps but that sun is nice and warm and the birds are out uh, making the most of it we've had a couple of good years how do you think i mean we're I, you've got to you've got to think that our numbers are up uh in, in at least in minnesota here the last couple of years where do you think we are you know how do you think we're faring as compared to recent years you know i don't think it's it's going to be pretty tough to get back to like those 07 08 numbers 06 but we've got to be sitting pretty well uh here and what about here in the region where do you think we're at 
You know, as far as pheasant numbers go, I'll just share anecdotally. Um, you know, I've only got 10 acres, but we I border a 500 acre wildlife management area out the back of my house. And I'm in the Northeast Metro. And this year is the most birds I've ever seen. Um, I harvested 13 roosters just out my back door. That's um, awesome. You know, reports that I heard uh, from all over Minnesota, uh, especially the pheasant range. So south, basically south and west of 94. Um, have been really good. Um, I think talking with Aaron a little bit, I know he had some, uh, he had some pretty nice pheasant hunts at the end of the year as well. Well, if anybody asks, there's no, there's no pheasants by my house. They're all gone. <laughs> clearly, you know, clearly. Never. I was going to ask, Brett, when you actually get your land that you manage and, and create, uh, I imagine you would invite me first, right? I'd have the first opportunity to do that. Let's go. Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> you bet. Well, you no, guys are going to you you help me design it, so you'll be on it. Well, and, and kind of some of this, wrapping some of this together, you know, Jared talked about it and Kayla hit on it too, but, uh, you know, you have an interest in creating habitat and, and utilizing folks, but there's a lot of landowners that want to create habitat for, for all kinds of reasons on their private land, but they don't have the expertise or the desire to have the expertise on what the best things are. And, that, and that's where people like Kayla and other folks come into that um to play there and so they can go into their local offices and the usda service center a great partner and, and someone who's helped us create the farm bill biologist program and and just you know outline their goals to people like kayla and kayla will take it from there they'll do the paperwork they'll get the technic make sure all the technical stuff is done they have all the recommendations for you know the, the grasses and the seeding rates and, and all that stuff they have lists of contractors available to actually do the physical work and it, it's really a one-stop shop that's meant to take a complex program like crp and make it very easy for people to, to enroll if that's what their goals are for part of their property well, lots of information there on the website, pheasantsforever.org. If, if anybody wants to know pretty much anything about what we talked about, we can all find it. We can find it all on that website, right? For the most Absolutely. part. Absolutely. And then, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, but that you can also find on pheasantsforever.org is um, all of the acquisitions in Minnesota mm. that Pheasants Forever helped create. And so, you know, maybe, you know, everybody's got their favorite one, two or three pieces of public land uh, to go hunt. But, you know, there's a lot of times you say, you know what, I want to find a new piece. Oh, and right on cue. Uh, <laughs> every, one of those, every one of those pheasants um, is a piece of public land that Pheasants Forever led the acquisition effort on. So you can click on one of those. Um, you'll, you'll get the name, you know, the funding partners, a little bit of detail, maybe some pictures wow. when it was acquired. Um, so, you know, I know Jared in particular and, and a lot of other people worked very hard on creating this. And so we really encourage you to get out there and, and find a new piece of public land that you never know. Maybe it'll surprise you. Uh, maybe it'll become your favorite one. And um, if you don't see one close close to where you, you hunt or live, let us know and we'll try to help you out there. So, Jared, if I'm in Chicago, Nebraska, and I I have a, maybe a, a, my I can pull up on X and I can show you my property. Can I come up to you guys at Pheasant Fest and say, what should I do here? Help me manage Absolutely. this property. Absolutely. That's one of the uh, that's one of the best parts of National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic is we have our landowner habitat help desk and the habitat stage. Uh, you know, if you're interested in learning more about managing for pheasants or whitetails or turkeys, 
pollinators, prairie grouse, whatever it might be. Um, not only do we have a lot of informational presentations that run uh, every hour on the hour uh, on our on our habitat stage, uh, but we also have the habitat uh, landowner help desk, and that is an area where you can come in. Uh, all you need to know is. Uh, uh, particulars about your property as long as you can find it on a map uh, our biologists can help look up and see what kind of soil types are on there uh, see what kind of programs you qualify for so you can walk into national pheasant fest and quail classic which is coming up um, march 11th through the 13th at the chi health center in omaha uh, you can visit with one of our biologists and you can walk out uh, with a conservation plan that is that is tailored to whatever land use you're working on. And of course, I said Chicago, of course, it's Omaha, but I, Chicago must be a, a suburb of Omaha. Yeah, Chicago, Nebraska. I'm surprised yeah. more people haven't heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. March 11th through the 13th. Man, there's so much going on that weekend. I'd love to get down there. I've got to be at a couple of other shows here in the in the um, in Minnesota that weekend, unfortunately. But uh, when it, what, do we know where it is next year? When do you guys announce next year or the, the following years? When's it going to be back up here? We know we know when we know where it's going to be next year. We know the dates. Uh, I'm not going to announce it yet. It's going to be oh, announced. come on! Uh, S- Sunday of National Pheasant Fest. Breaking Fest, news. But, yeah. <laughs> here, here first. Come on. Uh, one, one of the things I did want to point out though is that you know if, if if anybody's looking at making the track the National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, my promise to you would be is that you know attending the show, um, you can help us make more public land. And I really don't think there's another. Um, you know, trade show or convention in the country that can say that. Um, if folks remember the last time, I think 2020, when we were in Minneapolis, we had a new public lands pavilion and we had a bunch of vendors in that area who helped us raise a whole bunch of money uh, that was matched, uh, I think at a minimum of three to one and helped us purchase the Kubido Wildlife Management Area, which is just shy of a thousand acres uh, in Western Minnesota. And we're doing uh, doing something similar this year for National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic in Nebraska and in Omaha, and that uh, our public lands pavilion this year is gonna be raising money for Nebraska's Open Fields and Waters Program, which is essentially their their walk-in access program. Um, Our goal is to raise 75,000 acres, or $75,000, excuse me, and open up access to an additional 10,000 10, acres of walk-in uh, walk-in hunting here for 2022. So that's a pretty 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 cool thing that we can talk about that no other um, trade show in the country is doing right now. Well, obviously there's some good causes, but it's just a fun show to be at too. And unfortunately I have to work a couple of other shows or else I come down. Cause that'd be a perfect excuse <laughs> to go chase. There's going to be probably some snow geese flying around Nebraska while you're down there, Jared. I'm just saying, bring the, bring the whites, yep. bring the 12 gauge. You probably yep, got that's right, right on the Missouri river. So yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck down there at, uh, at pheasant fest, the national pheasant fest and quail classic. I get that whole thing. Thing, right make sure you, uh, have a good time down there good luck with everything um, just how, do we have a, can you give us a hint for next year is there anything that is there no hints no no I'll give you 10,000 hints here oh hello hello all right very good well uh, Jared Wickland Caleb Locker Aaron Sanquist uh, keep up the good work there at Pheasants Forever and thanks for the time today on the show Thanks for having us. Thank you. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. 
subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx.